2: Hello, everyone. Welcome to Dan Snow's History. The school holidays are drawing to an end. The vacation is drawing to an end. And we're almost ready to go back to work. Are you looking forward to going back to school, Zia? No. What's your favourite subject?
3: Um, history.
2: Obviously. Well done. It's time for another podcast. This time we're looking at... the the extraordinary relationship, a Faustian bargain in which Germany sought to rebuild its military forces following the First World War. The Treaty of Versailles banned Germany from having heavy armour, limited the size of its armed forces, banned certain weapon systems and yet Germany found ways around that by working with an ally, putting military facilities and training programmes on foreign soil. That foreign soil everyone, was the good old USSR, yep, the country with which Germany would have the mighty showdown, the greatest and bloodiest conflict the world ever seen from 1941 to 1945, was in fact the country that helped put the German military back on its feet. Pretty remarkable, is it I guess so. And here's talk about that subject is Assistant Professor of Military History, Ian Johnson, He's at university, which is always hard for us Brits to pronounce because we sound like idiots, but he's at the University of Notre Dame in Indiana. Uh, He's a brilliant guy, and he has written extensively about interwar relations between Weimar Germany and Hitler's Germany and the USSR. Which reminds me, Zia, have I told you enough about the Second World War on the Eastern Front? Um,
3: let's think. You've told me about ten gillions, gillion times... There's nothing that you haven't told me about, Dad. What is the most
2: useful thing that I have taught you as a father?
3: Mm, to load a cannon?
2: <laughs> I was not expecting that answer. Uh, that is possibly true, actually. One day you may have to sponge, worm, load, ram a cannon. It may happen. It may happen sooner than we think. Uh, so... Before you listen to the wonderful Ian Johnson, please go. We've got our insane January sale on. I've been too distracted by childcare to actually take control of all the madness going on in the office. The fire sale. They're smashing up the furniture and putting it in the boiler aboard the Titanic here. Uh, Please go to historyhit.tv. You can get a subscription to our new digital history channel. It's like Netflix for history. If you use the code January, you've got this January sale on. If you use the code January, can you spell January's here? Yes. Go on then.
3: Jay, why do you want me to spell January?
2: Because I can't.
3: Yes, you can.
2: Anyway, write January in the little box and you'll get 30 days for free and then you'll get four months for just one pound, euro or dollar of each of those four months. Insanely cheap, go for it. So enjoy this podcast, Ian Johnson, teach your kids how to load a cannon and then go to History Hit and take out a subscription. Big to-do list, everyone. Enjoy.
0: I feel we have the history on our shoulders. All this tradition of ours, our school history, our songs, this part of the history of our country, all were gone and finished and liquidated.
3: One child, one teacher, one book and one pen can change the world.
2: Ian, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Dan, thanks for having me. Your book is is just Stunning. And it's a reminder that we, we, the fall, the autumn of 2019, we are marking the uh, 80th anniversary of not just the German invasion of Poland, but also the Soviet invasion of Poland, when they carved up the country between them. Uh, but but you, dem- you demonstrate in this book that the cooperation between the Nazis, and in fact, the Germans and the Soviet Union, goes, goes much further back. It does, yeah. It begins almost as soon as the First World War has ended.
3: And, and what that's remarkable, what, what kind of, what, what, what shape does it take? Well, and as soon as the, the uh, Treaty of Versailles is concluded in the summer of 1919, the, the remnants of the German high command who are upset about the terms of the treaty begin to try to seek international partners, and they find uh, eventually find help in the Soviet Union in evading some of the terms of Versailles. So, Beginning in 1922, they'll begin relocating banned military industrial facilities that weren't allowed under the terms of the Treaty of Versailles to the Soviet Union. And eventually the relationship will grow to uh, a, a very extensive direct military to military collaboration where hundreds of German officers are in fact training on Soviet soil. And is this being done with the knowledge of
2: the civilian politicians in, in charge of the so-called Weimar Republic, or is this just, is this just uh, military uh, decision makers taking matters into their own hands?
3: Well, it's, uh, that's it's an important question. So initially the, the relationship is really driven By German military personnel, without the knowledge of their own government, there are going to be a series of scandals in the 20s that that bring to public attention the fact that the German military, without the knowledge of their own government, is is doing uh, all sorts of illegal rearmament work in the Soviet Union. It's not really until 1927 that German politicians are fully aware of what their own military is doing, and at that point they sit down and they they request additional information on what exactly is being done, and eventually they will approve the various German military efforts. And at that point, they'll work hand in hand. But for the first five to six years of the relationship, the military is largely operating independently. Is that, I mean, that presumably is a reflection on,
2: on the, the instability, the weakness, if you like, of this new fledging uh, Weimar government, this, this Republican government after, after decades of Germany being uh, an imperial state ruled over by a, an emperor. Absolutely.
3: You know, the Weimar Republic is, its first task is to negotiate the surrender of Germany in the First World War, and it's never really, uh, really generates a great deal of popularity in part because of that fact. Uh, and we'll see them essentially be forced to cut a deal with the German military during the first major communist uprising during the German Revolution, where they essentially agree to allow the German military a great deal of independence financially, diplomatically, and politically in exchange for uh, the military's support Uh, of the Weimar Republic. It's an uneasy partnership between the military and the state throughout this period. And yet the military, presumably being run still
2: by a lot of uh, um, old regime, ancien regime kind of characters, uh, Junker, aristocrats and things, they didn't see any problem with working with the the Soviet, uh, the communist Soviets.
3: it's, It's interesting if you read their personal writings. The Germans, obviously, they despise Lenin. They hate the Bolsheviks. They call them some very nasty things in their private correspondence. And the Soviets, of course, return the, the feeling with, uh, with gusto, very, very much disliking and even despising many of these German uh, aristocrats and elites. Interestingly, in their, in their, on the Soviet side, in their private correspondence, they always refer to the Germans in, as friends, but in, in quotation marks, indicating exactly what they thought of this partnership. But they are willing to work together because of their shared antipathy to the new state of Poland, the Treaty of Versailles, the entire international order. And there, it's interesting, there are a number of deep friendships and personal relationships that will eventually develop over almost 15 years of cooperation during the, the first phase of the Soviet-German relationship through the rise of Hitler. How interesting. So
2: actually, well, it, well it's truly Faustian. So what was in it for the Soviet Union? Just, just cash?
3: Well, you know, they played hardball in terms of the negotiations. They wanted to get as much as possible out of the Germans uh, as they could. So in exchange for allowing the Germans to construct four military bases, jointly operated Soviet-German military bases, relocating military industry, setting up training and testing grounds, the Soviets expected full access to German technology. And they also expected the the Germans to send enormous numbers of instructors and engineers to assist them. And the scale of the cooperation would become quite staggering. So the, the Germans will end up training 156 senior Soviet officers in Germany, Uh, And these are people including the deputy chief of the Red Army, the head of their training inspectorates, the head of the the Red Air Force, and the engineering partnership. Uh, Various German firms dispatching with German military assistance, engineering teams, will end up playing an enormous role in Soviet industrialization. When the war begins in 1941, 10 of the 18 Soviet tank factories, for instance, have been modernized or built with German finances or, uh, or technical assistance. So the, the Soviets will gain an enormous amount in terms of military technology, industry uh, and training. Uh, the the problem on the training side, the enormous numbers of Soviets who, uh, who will study alongside the Germans, many of them are considered suspect by Stalin because they've encountered Germans and spent a great deal of time with them. And so as a result, the vast majority will be executed or arrested during the Great Purges in 1937 and 1938. I've actually seen the request from the Politburo for a list of all senior Soviet personnel who have spent time alongside the Germans, presumably uh, preceding an arrest order.
2: But you know what's coming, right? The next question has to be uh, when people like uh, Zhukov or or people were rehabilitated on the outbreak of war in 1941 between Germany and the Soviet Union, did, did any of those German trained officers take a leading part in defeating the German invasion of the Soviet Union? Well, it's it's
3: interesting. You know, there are some who are rehabilitated, but so many disappear that uh, they they really don't play a major role on on the Soviet side. The the military industrial facilities that have been built with German assistance will play a huge role in saving the Soviet Union. A lot of the doctrine that's imported from Germany, the the Soviets have a lot of the German playbook because of their work together. Eventually those lessons will be relearned, but uh, very few of the leading lights on the Soviet side, in fact, are survivors. Uh, of of the Soviet German partnership,
2: Ian, was this a direct contravention of the Treaty of Versailles, or was this a uh, exploiting like a, was there a loophole in Versailles that actually allowed the Germans to carry out large scale maneuvers and training on, on foreign soil? Well,
3: this was something of a gray area. Uh, so we see the the British and French certainly by 1927 have a pretty good sense of what's going on in the Soviet Union through spies reports and other intelligence. And they consider it a violation of the Treaty of Versailles, but not one that they are willing to spend political capital and, and try to prevent. On the German side, they're quite convinced that their activities uh, are, probably exceed the terms of Versailles. So the, term, the Treaty of Versailles was actually forced by the, the German uh, Reichstag was forced to pass it into law as a German law. Uh, and it certainly violated uh, some of the requirements about, for instance, producing munitions on German soil. So when they're sending tank prototypes and aircraft, th- those have to be first built, uh, you know, even in small numbers in Germany. And so those are being built and shipped to the Soviet Union illegally. Then they take comical efforts to try to prevent uh, revelations. For instance, when they start dispatching tanks in 1927 to the, the main tank an armor warfare testing ground, they're actually going to weld plows on the front of them to try to make them look like tractors, just in case an allied inspector stops the train that, that happens to be passing to the Soviet Union. And they'll send all of their pilots disguised as tourists, something uh, German officers are not very good at, at playing, uh, and maybe the Soviet Union in, in the mid-1920s wasn't an ideal place for tourists either, but they, they certainly act as if they're in, uh, in broad violation of the treaty with their, their efforts at secrecy.
4: Learn about Yasuke, the African warrior who entered the trusted circle of Japan's most powerful warlord. Hear accounts of cultures colliding when Portuguese missionaries landed on Japanese shores and followed Japan's journey through years of division and bitter warfare to unification at the dawn of the modern era. Make sure you catch every episode by following Echoes of History, a Ubisoft podcast brought to you by History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts.
1: There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com
0: slash weight loss. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance.
2: And and as towards the end of the 1920s, when the Weimar government becomes aware of what's going on, does it does it even attempt to uh,
3: curtail these efforts, or or does it just embrace them? So the, the biggest scandal that emerges is in, in December 1926. The Manchester Guardian actually is the one that breaks uh, open revelations that Germany had been building or assembling combat aircraft in the Soviet Union, and it's the revelations are so dramatic it leads to a vote of no confidence and uh, the Reichstag, the, the chancellor is recalled, it's this major political scandal. And we'll see in, in January, February, and March 1927 there are a series of meetings between German civilian leaders and the military and the conclusion is quite surprising and fascinating which is essentially the German civilian leaders say well this actually you're giving us leverage to some degree uh, and we don't necessarily disapprove of of the efforts you're making. Uh, Gustav Stresemann who wins the Nobel Peace Prize is actually the one communicating with the German military and saying I'm actually okay with this as long as you, you know, follow a certain checklist in terms of, of security and secrecy, and essentially will increase the funding for secret rearmament starting in 1928. Wow, that's amazing. And and so,
2: I mean, I mean, just how important, therefore, between 28 and the, the rise of the Nazi Party, uh, at what proportion of of Germans Germany's peacetime military training and, and development effort is actually taking place on Soviet soil?
3: it's it's enormous. So about 30% of the budget for training is being spent on the facilities in the Soviet Union. And that's those are more or less the legal lines, so even more perhaps in black funds and other earmarked accounts. Uh, the, the scale is pretty staggering. So the German military is limited to about 4,000 officers by the terms of the Treaty of Versailles. There are going to be over 1,000 officers and men who pass through the various training facilities from the German side. So somewhere around a quarter, maybe a little less, of the German officer corps is going through these various facilities in the Soviet Union. Uh, almost every single aircraft prototype being developed is in fact being tested by flight uh, various pilots in the Soviet Union. The, all of the, Germany's tank prototypes are being tested and developed there. And in fact, figures like Heinz Guderian, who's considered the father of, of Blitzkrieg, he's going to go to the Soviet Union when he needs to figure out what tanks are capable of and actually sit down with engineers and, and German officers who are ha- getting hands-on experience with tanks to actually draw what the doctrines should be. So in military technology training uh, and, and doctrine uh, without the Soviet Union, uh, German rearmament in the 30s is really not possible. Yeah, so let's come let's come up to
2: uh, the advent of the Nazi party, and Adolf Hitler seizing power. Or arguably the Weimar Republic, there were socialists in charge, they, they may have regarded the Soviets as as kin, uh, ideological fellow travelers, but Adolf Hitler specifically targeted socialists as enemies of the state. So how did he what what effect did his coming to power have on this relationship
3: with the Soviet Union? So in 1928, he had begun, or he had completed a manuscript of his second book, Following Mein Kampf. He actually dedicates a chapter to Soviet-German relations. And he says that he has an inkling that uh, Germany and the Soviet Union have been working together in terms of military cooperation. And he thinks it's a bad idea for a variety of ideological reasons, his anti-Semitism, his concerns about communism. And so when he comes to power, he's going to start dismantling this, this relationship. And in some ways, Germany's already gotten what it wanted. It wanted to develop technologies, train lots of officers, maintain military industry and, and expertise. And by 1932, even before Hitler comes to power, the military is actually be able to begin bringing large amounts of the training facilities and development back to German soil, as the Allies have withdrawn their various inspection teams that have prevented that from taking place. So. Hitler is, is able to begin uh, bringing those uh, facilities and resources back, and it, but he won't completely disentangle the German and Soviet militaries until 1935, which is when they suspend working on uh, submarine technology together. So he slowly unravels the relationship. Interestingly, the Soviets are quite eager to maintain the relationship. They're getting so much out uh, of German industrial firms in particular through both espionage uh, on Soviet soil and through direct exchanges that the Soviets will repeatedly reach out to Hitler in 1933, 34, 37, and 38 to try to restore the relationship in some way, shape, or form. Uh,
2: This is hugely surprising stuff. I mean, is it possible for you? Do you make a judgment? Do you come to a judgment as to how significant uh, Germany's role was in the victory of the Red Army in 1945. It's one of the big questions.
3: Who, who wins from this extended partnership? And while on the face of it, Germany would not have been able to, to launch the Second World War, to invade Poland without all of the research, research and, and training done earlier in conjunction with the Soviets. But in the long term, of course, the Soviets will end up uh, winning the war on the Eastern Front. And they'll depend enormously on men and material developed alongside the Germans. Uh, the, the partnership, particularly the economic ramifications, are enormous, even though Stalin squandered a lot of the, the, the training, the human material through his, his purges. Uh, so I, I think it's absolutely essential to the Soviet war effort that they've received uh, so much in terms of tank designs, some of which were borrowed from the Germans, aircraft designs, again, drawing from German technology, uh, developing their doctrine and, of course, the actual military industrial facilities that produce the enormous numbers of, of T-34s and other uh, planes and tanks that will enable the Soviet Union to survive and eventually win the Second World War. It's actually ironic
2: thinking about it that when the Germans and the Soviets finally do formalize their, their well, their sort of agreement their, their, with the Nazi-Soviet pact and, and the Soviets supply the Germans with vast amounts of raw materials, at that stage, having had a history of, of military exchange, that was, was there any further, was there any suggestion that that might be a good idea again to start to start these joint programs up again?
3: Absolutely, and in fact, they do. So uh, it's a, a forgotten aspect of, of the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact that, again, Stalin has repeatedly referenced the earlier period known as the Rapallo period uh, because of a treaty that normalized relations between Germany and the Soviet Union in 1922. He references this when he reaches out to Hitler about the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. And in fact, they will resume some elements of their direct military cooperation. In October 1939, the the Soviets will go so far as to allow the Germans to operate, uh, uh, open a base on their soil, which they do, uh, Basis Nord, a naval base near Murmansk, where they're going to base submarines and and commerce raiders to go after uh, particularly British shipping. Um, Perhaps the most remarkable direct military collaboration during the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, which again harkens back to the earlier period, is uh, the story of the the Comet, which is a a German merchant raider. Uh, The Soviets allow this ship uh, to, to sail to Murmansk. They provide it with icebreakers to allow it to transit the Arctic Ocean to the Pacific and then allow it to use a Soviet flag to cloak its various activities in the Pacific where it will end up sinking nine British ships in 1940 before returning to Hamburg. So the elements of direct military collaboration become quite extensive and, and definitely um, echo the earlier period.
2: When you're writing this book, uh, presumably this is a story that the Russians today do not want being told. So
3: w- w- how, how did you go about doing the research? It's a, it's a little tricky, yes. Uh, the Second World War, obviously uh, you know, the Soviet Union suffers so much during the war. It's still a very uh, a sensitive and emotive topic in Russia today. Um, You know, I so I worked in British, German, Polish, American, and and Russian archives. I spent the majority of my research time uh, in in the Russian Federation. Some stuff is is off limits. Some elements of this are off limits. The Molotov Ribbentrop Pact was not acknowledged until the '80s. Uh, the the secret components of it by the Soviet government. Um, there was a there was a fair degree of openness when I was working in Moscow. But my greatest good fortune was to go out to smaller oblast archives around Russia in vicinity of the various military bases that had been formed by, by Germany and the Soviet Union in this period. And look and see what had survived in these local, these local facilities. And I found a lot of times stuff that was off limits in, in Moscow was available in these, these smaller regional archives. So for instance, uh, near the major flight facility at Lipetsk, I found NKVD secret police records, uh, dossiers on all of the German pilots there, uh, sexual proclivities, what they were reading, their, uh, their personal habits, all compiled uh, by the NKVD. That sort of stuff is off limits in Moscow, but it was still available in these regional archives. So there was, I, was, I was very fortunate that there was in fact so much available and, and a lot of very friendly archivists willing to help me find what, what could be found.
2: Well, I gotta say buddy, you might wanna cancel next summer's trip to St. Petersburg, cause I'm not sure you're gonna be too welcome there after shining a spotlight on this extraordinary, extraordinary <laughs> bit of history. Any personal stories from from Germans who developed close relationships with with Soviets during the war, and, and then
3: ended up fighting on Soviet soil. Yes, there are, there are a number. I've, I've tried to track as many of these, particularly senior German officers, as possible. There's one uh, who is a uh, he's a division commander when the Second World War begins on the German side, and. Uh, According to the stories I could find, and it was a little unclear in his personnel record, it looks like he had a nervous breakdown early on in the war against the Soviet Union. He fought with distinction in Poland and France, and he witnesses some atrocities being carried out uh, by German forces in Ukraine fairly early in the war, and he he requests a transfer and transfers back to Germany, ends up managing motor pools for the rest of the war. So clearly, some, some officers were affected in this very visceral way by fighting there. Others were radicalized by their experience in the Soviet Union. So, a lot of the officers who served in 1931-32, they've developed close relationships with Soviet officers, uh, but they're also witnessing collectivization and famine and etc. And so that, coupled with the disappearance of many of their friends during the Great Purges, actually will make them uh, perhaps even more hardened towards communism and more willing to commit atrocity. But one one final anecdote. This is a, a diplomat, actually. So, Ambassador Dirksen, who is there throughout this entire period, In 1945, he's sitting at his estate uh, in East Prussia, uh, uh, sorry, in in Prussia, waiting for the arrival of of Red Army forces to his his house. And when they arrive, they're they're looting, they're destroying much of his property. He thinks he's going to be shot. And then one of them notices a photo on his mantle over the fireplace. And it's a picture of of Ambassador Dirksen with uh, Klement Voroshilov, the, the commissar for war during much of this period, and the two of them that were out hunting it was a photo of the two of them smiling together. And the Soviet officers immediately apologized, restored the house as much as possible, and left, and saving his life. This, this lasting image of the partnership allowing him to, to live on after the war.
2: That, that, that's a remarkable story. Um, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. The book is called? The Faustian Bargain. It's with Oxford University Press, uh, and it will be out next summer. It is Faustian indeed. Well, thank you so much. That was fascinating. Please come on the podcast again soon.
3: Absolutely. Thank you. have the history on our All this tradition
0: of ours, our school history, our songs, this part of the history of our country, all were gone and finished and liquidated.
3: One child, one teacher, one book, and one pen can change the world.
2: Tells us
1: what is possible, not just in the pages of history books, but in our own lives as well. I have faith
2: in you. Hi, everyone, it's me, Dan Snow. Just a quick request. It's so annoying and I hate it when other podcasts do this, but now I'm doing it and I hate myself. Please, please go onto iTunes wherever you get your podcasts and give us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps and basically boosts up the chart, which is good. And then more people listen, which is nice. So if you could do that, I'd be very grateful. I understand if you don't subscribe to my TV channel. I understand if you don't buy my calendar, but this is free. Come on, do me a favor. Thanks.
0: When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all.